Hey, how you doing? No, really, how are you doing? It's hard for me to start a conversation with you, since I'm just a recording. We'll talk about Undertale and how it engages you in dialogue tonight on the Commune Podcast. My name's Adrian. Uh, nothing special about me. I'm just a college kid, and I've been in this podcast for a little over a year. I'm doing okay. College is pretty rough right now. I'm getting to some of my more advanced classes, so chemistry, advanced Java programming, and physics. So not the best classes to be taking all at once while having a hotel job. So that's where I'm at in life. Games I've been playing recently have actually been Sins of a Solar Empire and Legend of Zelda Second Quest. I don't know if you want to hear me gripe about that game anymore. (laughs) All right, Wario fan, introduce yourself. I am Wario fan, and I like Nintendo a lot. (laughs) (laughs) And I love telling people about Nintendo games. (laughs) Like, just last night, I told Adrian about a Wrecking Crew game, and it was the best feeling of my life. That's cool. Yesterday. (laughs) Um, Recently, I've been playing Metroid Zero Mission for the first time, and I just got to the new epilogue area. Oh, wow. Wait, you you already beat the game? Yeah. Dang. How long did it take to beat it? I don't know. I started it like Wednesday. <laughs> it's it's just Metroid, so yeah. You know. They were they're not that long games to begin with, and as long as I took in Super Metroid, that was still about seven hours. All right, shouty. What games are you playing, and how have you been doing? Oh, I've been playing Off. It's a game made in RPG Maker XP. It's kind of what people had before Undertale came out. And um, when I first played Undertale, I thought it was a rip-off of Off. It kind of um, plays with the same ideas and themes as Undertale does, but in a, in a way that's more cynical and doesn't, is not really uh, um, unified by one common theme or imparts a, a moral. And Golem said he'll be home by 7.30. Oh, uh, will he? And I'm just getting over cold. Oh, uh, that's okay. So with us are two special guests. Nathan, tell us all about yourself. How you been and what you been playing. Uh, my name is Nate. We're Nathan. We're Nathaniel. I graduated college with an English degree and an IT minor. So I've got a little bit of both worlds in terms of uh, games and uh, the things that make us feel compelled to play them, I guess. I've been playing Duck Game, which I just bought the other day. Turns out that's a ton of fun. And uh, The Witness. Cool. I actually saw when I tried to jump in your stream that you were actually already at the ending of the game. How long did that take you? I called out sick from work to play this game because I've been waiting (laughs) for it for five years. uh, Five years? Wow. I've I've been following its production since uh, it was announced, basically. Wow. I was a big fan of Braid, so I'm also a bit of a Jonathan Blow fanboy, which is kind of pathetic, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I like the guy a lot. He says some stuff that's pretty interesting. That's cool. And he makes he makes good games, too. So. All right. And now for our last special guest. Yes. Um, Tumblr user Mad Biology. You can call me Carrie if you like, but uh, either one will do. Lately, I've been playing some Yoshi's Woolly World and getting a little bit frustrated mm. at Triforce Heroes because I don't know two other people who own the game. Oh, that sucks <laughs> when that happens. Yeah. And so I'm one it, of two it, people who owns the game. 
And as I'm going through and thinking about the uh, puzzles and how they were designed, and especially how some of the bosses were designed, I just keep thinking to myself, this wasn't meant for one person to be juggling all these poor little links that are getting their butts kicked. Oh well. But uh, having been having great fun with uh, Woolly World. It's, uh, it's just a fun little romp, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Have you tried uh, going online and finding other players to play with? To be honest, I haven't, mostly because I've heard that that's about as useful as trying to herd cats. <laughs> uh, you could, by some uh, some miracle, end up with some people who are willing to play through the game and cooperate with you, but most of the time, it seems like most accounts are of, I just went online on Triforce Heroes, why did I do that? Um, so, I've been able to get to the first five worlds and build uh, all of the missions throughout uh just solo relying on online players. Really? Yeah, it, well, it was not. It was frustrating, but I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but see, then that wouldn't solve my problem. I'd still be frustrated. So where's the fun in that? Most of the frustration came from the lag, though. Oh, and that, there's another issue there. But yeah, um, overall, I tend to like what things that Nintendo's doing, and uh, I get some PC games on occasion, but. Uh, the newest non-Nintendo, non-PC console I own is a PlayStation 2, so, uh, yeah, I'm a little behind on things, but uh, such is life. <laughs> cool. Now that would be where usually Golem stops. Dialogue is the word of the day. In this upcoming segment, we attempt to conduct dialogue with Carolyn Pettit. She wrote an essay that speaks, in part, about Undertale. But in another sense, we discuss the nature of dialogue itself. Carolyn Pettit argues that conversation in Undertale does not express genuine feelings. We consider her arguments and move on to consider dialogue in Undertale as a whole. This time on the Commune Podcast, we're going to be talking about discourse within Undertale, which uh, is to say the discussions you have during encounters in Undertale. Uh, Shouty in particular found an interesting Tumblr post by Carolyn Petit. She's a former editor for GameSpot, and uh, she has a lot of interesting things to say about Undertale. And I should mention, I saw one of the rebuttals which interested me because it had some insights about the game I wasn't aware of. And uh, the author of said rebuttal, uh, Carrie, is with us now. Uh, Hello, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So in her initial post, Carolyn Petit says, The way to avoid killing in Undertale isn't through honest, open communication. It's through manipulation and evasion. Figuring out exactly what you have to do in order to avoid having to kill someone and then doing it. So, Nate... When you played Undertale, in order to spare enemies, did you feel like you were manipulating them? There may have been some, like, sneaky methods of getting people to stop fighting you, but in my mind, the entire idea was just to be non-aggressive. Whether or not you were being manipulative in some way really is less important than if you were being aggressive. Because every enemy you encounter is aggressive towards you. So you're always morally superior than the thing that's attacking you, in my mind. 
Mm, it's not like you go up and kick someone and someone getting you into an encounter. Right. That's interesting. So for you, the whole matter of genuine dialogue is moot because you're trying to talk someone off of this violent behavior. Oh, I guess so. Genuine dialogue isn't exactly... At least this isn't the place I would think about it because, I I mean, one of the things you need to do to get these two guards to stop attacking you is rubbing their armor until they're, you know, (laughs) until they're they're too hot and then they have to take their armor off and then they go on a date. So it's not like... (laughs) It's not like genuine discussion is necessary in, in these little instances. I don't know. So... I wouldn't call that manipulating, and I wouldn't. At, at worst, it would be evasive. So the point is, you're just trying to get this thing or person or enemy to stop attacking you. And as long as you're not attacking them back, or I mean, I can't think of an instance in which there's something like kind of cruel or like truly like evilly manipulative going on. Yeah, those guards isn't like touching them all over like sexual harassment. <laughs> <laughs> Very well could be, but hey, I mean that that's well, part like of the it. Is- of, of being a pacifist in that game. I think the game is trying to confuse people that walk on two legs with dogs that walk around on four legs, and it seems acceptable in that case because, you know, you pet dogs. I don't think we understand that in kind of a Wait, sexual... Wait, dogs? Wait. With the... I thought the guards were dogs. No, 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 he's talking about the ones in Hotland. Yeah, those yeah, no, they were the dogs. Ones. You just rub their armor until they, they can't, you know, they have to take their shirts off. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, never mind. And then at, at that point you start... Uh, playing uh, on the, beating on the chest of one of the guards like like their pecs for a pair of bongo drums. <laughs> All right, um, never mind then. I don't really consider that to be um, like sexual harassment though, because you would think that if they were uncomfortable with that, they would say something rather than just "ha." Huh. Hmm. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. So it's uh, that that reaction that I think puts it in the context and allows us to to laugh at it because it really is just something that's played for laughs at that point and it's really unexpected when I like when I was first playing and I got to that part I was like what the hell is going on? <laughs> oh, oh by the way, it's laughing. not you don't rub their armor, you're cleaning their armor. So it's even more innocuous than that. It's just oh, yeah. there's absolutely nothing, you know, suggestive going on here. You're merely cleaning their armor. I guess it also works since the player character is a child. <laughs> yes. So it's sure. more innocuous. I don't know. Kids, kids can do some pretty. Uh, well, they don't know what they're doing because they're kids. Well, yeah, sure. Yeah, but at the same time, when you look at the way that it's presented in the game, it's not really supposed to be evocative of oh, you're you're doing something sexual to this um, bunny guard or this ra- or this uh, dragon guard. It's more just again, it's just meant to be a very unexpected and humorous situation, as are many of the uh, encounters in Undertale. Yeah. There's a lot of innuendo in Undertale, though, like, altogether, but I don't know. I don't think Undertale, I mean, uh, uh, innuendo is necessarily, like, it's not necessarily trying to get you to think really sexual thoughts. It's more just goofy and silly little prods toward realistic, uncomfortable situations. Wario fan, would you agree that most of the communication with enemies in Undertale is mostly uh, harmless and and mostly good-natured? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, um, well, one of the ones that gets me is that uh, Aaron, I don't think I ever figured out how to correctly spare him. I thought flexing was the way to go, but he didn't really have a happy ending in the uh, credits. Aaron is the the horse that you flex until he goes to heaven? Yeah. (laughs) Well, he flexes himself out of the room, basically. But that doesn't seem to actually be the correct way to spare him. Is Why is that? Question. Can you... I don't remember. 
there's also the ending ending credits where like it gives you the little uh, epilogues for everybody. Yeah. Right. And right. everybody you spared correctly gets a yellow name, but Aaron wasn't yellow for me, so I must have did something wrong with them. I'm reading the Wikipedia page right now for Aaron, and it's showing there's multiple ways to spare Aaron, and the main way is to flex. And so if you do that at the end of the game, the credits will say he's still flexing. Oh, oh, and then all right. So if you the, the correct way to spare him is to play Napsta blocks Napsta Bluk's music and. He becomes a paranormal investigator or something. So Wait, you, you can read about it here. I didn't even know you could get that. Yeah, so there's is a that, lot of stuff in this game. Is that the event where basically you go into Napsbluk's house, you have to play one of his CDs and then leave? You get into an encounter and it's uh, Aaron and Washua getting all spooked at the music. Like, oh man, this, this music's too spooky for me, man. And why are you smiling? It, yeah. They're what? scared smiles. Oh yeah, it's a whole scene you can trigger. It's really funny. There's so many little nooks and crannies in this game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine how many I must have missed. I think I already made a Ghost Adventures joke last episode, so I'm kind of <laughs> struggling to keep it in here, but very hard. Anyways, I thought a uh, manipulation, and if it, well, maybe not evasion, but the manipulation part. I guess the connotation behind that was a, uh, I guess uh, to me, a bit of a harsh way to read into it. I honestly felt about it the same way Carolyn did, where or or petite. I don't know what's more appropriate. I thought it was Pettit. Pettit. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'll just say Carolyn because I know how to pronounce that. Uh, I felt like Carolyn because it felt like sometimes I would have to pay compliments. Her papyrus example is exact, like matches exactly how I felt where I was under the impression that I was forced to flirt with papyrus in order to reach a peaceful conclusion, which feels like really disingenuous. And like, you know, if I flirted with a normal person to a great extent, but just wanted to get away from them. Like, that seems kind of mean-spirited. So it felt like in order to get out of certain situations, I would have to express feelings counter to what I, Golem, and I, fucker, felt. Wow. <laughs> Why are you referencing my character? Because <laughs> I don't remember what my character was called. I thought this was a PG podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not anymore. Okay. I guess another one is... The thing I wanted to ask was, um, are there any other examples besides, you know, that one with papyrus? Well, this uh, Froggit's a good one because um, you either have to compliment it or you have to threaten it. Well, I threatened him, so. <laughs> yeah, but both of those are kind of mean. It, isn't there an enemy? I forget if it's uh, late in the game or if it's part of the, the goofy lab sequence that wants you to bully him. Um, that is in the core. I believe it's the upgraded version of um, looks. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. There's the early version where you had to, uh, you know, not pick on him, and then there's this one that wanted you to pick on him. I wasn't sure how to feel about that. I guess he's a masochist. Well, uh, my interpretation of that was that he wanted you to demonstrate that you are tough and you can handle yourself, and he was then satisfied by your show of of your your pride in yourself and your ability to you know stick up for yourself, even if in a way that you know you or I might not see as uh, you know sticking up for yourself when you're picking on somebody, but consider it from the monster's perspective in this case. Actually, what I think it is is that um. Uh, that enemy is called astigmatism. What it does is that it changes expressions. First, it'll be in an eyeball, uh, and then it'll have like a, a mean-looking grin. Depending on which face it's making is the action course of action you take. So in real time, 
if you select don't pick on me when he's the eye, then that's how you spare it. Do if you do select pick on me when it's making the face, um, then that's how you will spare it. Oh, I didn't know that. Or I didn't know that it was in real time. I think it is at least. Okay. Yeah, I had a little trouble with that guy. I guess going back to it, one of the things I felt was I think they might have been going a little overboard because, I mean, even in the the post they only list like a whole one example, and I'm like, is that going a bit too far to describe? all game when you only have you know one example that maybe kind of fits the whole manipulation and evasion thing but the other thing was that um there was one part where they said you know flirting with papyrus that neither you nor your character wanted to do and i think it's that that part that kind of got me because for me i totally didn't mind doing that in fact i actively went out on a date with papyrus so it was a fun date too I yeah. thought that was so creepy. He is a real charmer. <laughs> you thought that was creepy? I thought that was creepy. You're Why? playing as a little child. Yeah, but how old is Papyrus? Uh, 2000? I don't know. But it's never been explicitly like stated whether or not the day was romantic. Yeah. it. But I suppose, you know, I have the bias of assuming that flirting has romantic connotation to it. Should we get bust out the dictionary? <laughs> Depends on who you ask, really. Depends on if yeah. depends on if flirted or not. So that was the other thing I kind of want to get at is that that's the kind of thing where it's like it depends on the person playing and you know their interpretation of the game. I don't think that's anything you can say that's really definitive about it. Some people may have wanted to flirt with Papyrus, and the thing is like about assuming the character's motivation because it's an RPG, you can assume whatever you want, really. So in both senses, what you're saying there is that Undertale it leaves enough room for imagination there that you can read into your decisions however you like. And so you might have a genuinely good reason for wanting to go out on a date with Papyrus, and you might just do it because you think the game's rules compel you to. And if you do it for the latter reason, then that kind of reflects on you as maybe a cynical game player. Mm-hmm. To some degree, yes, but um, the other thing we need to remember here is that flirting is not the only way to peacefully end the encounter. There are actually two other courses of action that I can think of offhand, at least. In one case, you can actually just spare him right off the bat, and if you do that, you cannot flirt with him for the rest of the fight. He ignores you because he's busy focusing on what he thinks he has to do. And the other option, which I think is kind of the funniest, is you can repeatedly lose that fight, and he he doesn't kill you. He just keeps sending you to his garage. But after a couple cycles of this, you come out and he kind of gives up and is just like, do you want to just continue on he goes no i can't even defeat someone as weak as you and you can proceed with the game he wants to hang out with you and you so you don't with papyrus in particular you don't even have to win that fight in order to proceed with the game i was never aware of either of those i just found flirting and assumed papyrus is like an interesting uh... example because like all right so from the beginning you're aware that he's kind of a doofus (laughs) yeah and he's not mm-hmm. making decisions that are best for him and or best for, you know, you or best for anyone. <laughs> and, like, you know, Sans is just on the same level as you are in the sense that you're kind of constantly keeping him appeased and you're, you're treating him like a child. So even though you, you, your character is a child, you, you kind of have the intellect of an adult, whereas Papyrus is... I mean, you're just kind of giving him what he wants, which might be, you know, wrongful. And there, there's something wrong to that by itself in just like kind of playing along with his, you know, misunderstood version of the world. 
but again, I guess the point is you're trying to keep him from attacking you, and you're also at the same time just trying to keep him happy the same way, you know, Sans does. You know, Sans always thanks you for playing along and stuff, so. Yeah, I think um, it's worthwhile to reflect on the Junior Jumble dialogue bit where you're not under threat of any violence when Papyrus asks you whether you think Junior Jumble or Crossword is easier, but Sans is still happy with you if you choose the thing that's going to placate him. And he gets placated either way, which is the funny thing. No matter what situation, you know, no matter what choice you pick, like he's always assuming you're flirting with him, or that he's always I did not assuming know. you're. Yeah, it doesn't matter. He's he's always well, like so. If you choose not to flirt with him, or if if you insult him or something, he'll he'll say like, "Oh, you're so in love with me, you don't want to be together." Like he'll say something ridiculous and always go with his version of the world. Well, the thing is, though. You know, the whole flirting thing never even enters the picture unless you pick the flirt option, because otherwise he just sees you as this amazing new friend who's fallen from above, and oh my god, it's a human. You're so cool, and I'm so cool, and let's be cool friends and everything. (laughs) And so unless you make that conscious decision to bring that to the table, he never brings it up. But it's very true that he... He he's just so happy about you, and he he can't he wouldn't be able to believe that anybody would insult the great papyrus for any reason other than for ev- the good of everyone. So clearly, everything you mu- you say must be uh, must be good. That's an interesting reflection, in that we learn a lot about what enemies like and what they dislike by what our dialogue choices are. Well, you might observe that Aaron likes working out because he has big muscles, but you also learn that because there is a flex option. Um, And so when you see the flirt option for Papyrus, you assume that means something, but you're saying that never even comes up unless you you go out of your way to choose it. Exactly. And so when I look at the set of options, I just think to myself, okay, the game establishes very clearly at the end that we are not Frisk. Frisk is Frisk. And so where do those options come from? I think they come from what fr- the things that Frisk would choose to do, and we guide Frisk to that option. So why the hell would Frisk think to flirt when they see a sk- tall skeleton man? I don't know. They're a little kid. They're silly. And you have to remember that a lot of this is through the eyes of a child. And so for that option to, to come up, I don't know. For all we know, maybe Frisk really did find Papyrus to be rather dashing in his own way. I mean, if you think of Monster Kid at the end of the game, he thinks Papyrus is pretty cool. So, I don't know. That was just kind of my my take on that, was that those options are just, through the, the eyes of this child, what they see as ways to interact with this strange monster that has presented themselves. Yeah, that was another thing. Well, that I was sort of getting at earlier about bringing up the when she was saying that I didn't want to flirt with him and I don't think my character wanted to flirt with and what you're saying kind of goes against that because I think part of the reason that option ex- exists in the first place is because maybe your character actually is willing to do that so it's not as you know kind of cruel as they may be making it out to be where you're making this character do things against their will or something yeah so shouty in her tumblr post Carrie mentions that to her, it felt less like manipulation and more like finding common ground with a monster and getting them to realize that you are no different from them. So would you say that this reading of the game is reasonable? Yeah, um, one of the previous podcasts, I mentioned something about uh, uh, how um, 
when you're a pacifist in this game, you're basically it's basically testing your social uh, your how sociable you are, and um, I think finding common ground is is a skill to use when socializing with people, finding ways to relate with them. Yeah, yeah, that's why you always got to pay attention to those uh, silly little jokes that happens in between commands. Mm-hmm. They actually mean something in the fight, even the ones like. That first gatekeeper dog who says, I can only see things that are moving or whatever, or Dogi and Dogoressa. Yeah, they do say things that uh, allude to what you're supposed to do next. Yeah. I also found it noteworthy that Carrie mentions that there is always the flee command, which is something easy to overlook, but when you're considering how genuine your options are, if you ever find anything truly objectionable, you can always run away. Boss fights aside, but I think those go on autopilot most of the time anyway. Well, well, of course, with the notable exception of Undyne, where you have to run because there is no convincing her until you right. uh, give her the water. But yeah, you know, discretion. Do I stay here or do I do I book it? Because at some t- at some points, you might not even be able to figure out what the correct option is. I had to run away from Thunderplane for the longest time because I couldn't fig I couldn't figure out what it meant by you get close but not too close. And now, looking back, it seems very obvious, but I was just like, wait, what am I doing here? So <laughs> That was such I, a cool enemy. Yeah. Yes, that was, that, was, that was hilarious. But yeah, the, the flea option is actually a lot more important than uh, a lot of people seem to give it credit for. I mean, it's the, probably not the most innovative thing that was introduced in Undertale, but it's still, like in many RPGs, is very, very important. Yeah, that running away from every battle is actually a valid way to play through the game. Minus probably the bosses, with the exception of Undine. Yeah, um, Toriel, if you run away, you have to come back. But within the bounds of the story, that makes a lot of sense. Papyrus, I don't know if he lets you run. I've never tried that before. I know what I'm doing after this. Um, <laughs> uh, Undyne, you have to run. Yeah. Comes after that. It's not. Is the next boss Metaton? I thought it was a dummy. Well, that's more like a mid-boss. After Undine, it's... You go, yeah, you go into Hotland, so yeah, it would be Metaton. Yeah, that's the Hotland chapter. Yeah. That's a huge yeah. chapter. And Metaton, you're, you are literally locked in that room, so you can't. And Asgore lit, uh, actually literally destroys that option for you. <laughs> yeah. From there, there's no, real, there's no real running away. But within the context of the story, it makes a lot of sense as to why you can't run. Yeah. But other than that, with the basic enemy encounters, you can always try and flee. So, Carrie, I wanted to ask... Carolyn mentions that, quote, I feel like my connections with them were founded on lies, and while that may not be as morally wrong as wholesale slaughter, it didn't exactly feel right to me, and it's no less gamey and artificial either. So I understand that you disagree with the basic assumption there, but if Undertale was a game where the only peaceful route was through lying, how would you feel about Undertale? Well, I feel that I would miss out on, on a lot of the um, the themes that uh, were brought up earlier about um, about finding common ground and cooperating and a lot of the things that allowed people to make that emotional connection to the game in the first place because if you're just if you are literally just lying your way through all the encounters that doesn't that that, that doesn't really bring up the warm fuzzies in the same way so to speak <laughs> it uh, you feel like it you feel like a tremendous a- asshole and so I feel like her interpretation of the game runs kind of counter to a lot of a lot of the things that people felt while they were playing the game. They felt like those actions were genuine, and 
the, the root of, at the root of this really is the amount of an emotional connection that a player feels with the game. And in this particular case, I just think that Carolyn didn't experience that same emotional connection to this uh, setting, to these characters, to this story that, say, you and I might have. And interestingly, after I made my post, I, I was thinking about it more, and who else has been manipulating the game with little to no emotional connection to uh, anything going on around them? You find out at the end of the No Mercy run, that's exactly what Flowey's been doing. And Flowey himself is a deep... I'm not and I'm not trying to say that Carolyn was wrong in her interpretation or how she was playing the game. Uh, our experiences are, are certainly our own. And in this case, it's especially fascinating because Flowey is a deconstruction of how we often approach most video games. Can I do this? Can I do that? What are my limits? And that can lead to a certain emotional disconnect. And I, in my opinion, that's a great deal of what Undertale addresses and a great big part of what its central theme revolves around. I think that's a really interesting point. I, like, I never thought about Undertale quite that way. Like, I've, I've played and read about it, but the, the whole idea about Flowey being the you as you are when you approach a new game, and I mean, like, I see your perspective of it being kind of um, detached or cynical, but I, I look at it as investigative. You know, if you're introduced to a brand new system, which is essentially what a video game is, like, why wouldn't you poke and prod it and try to figure out, like, what it allows you to do and what it doesn't allow you to do, and and I think the, the primary reason you're suggesting is that because in this game there are characters and they all have implied emotions and implied homes and implied family and friends. So to treat it as something that is just a, a system with no human value is to kind of d abandon the story or abandon the, the characters that are introduced to you. To some degree, um, we do need to kind of rein in. Undertale is certainly still a fiction. I'm not trying to say that, you know, I I'm mostly meaning emotional investment in the story and the characters, just as we would experience when we're reading a book. And so it's more a matter of that normal intellectual mode we go into, like you said, when we are presented with a new system, what can I do, what can't I do? Whereas Undertale, I feel, tries to present itself in a more, I almost want to say like a literary fashion. Like it tries to be very driven by characters and central themes in the same way that a, a book would be. And sort of the mechanics, they certainly don't take a back seat, but they seem to exist purely to further that. Right, right. So like unlike a game, like a Sudoku puzzle or something, where there's absolutely nothing and it's just a game... So there's no harm in, you know, trying to figure out the system. In this game, there's this narrative to it, which adds this emotional human element to the game, whereas, you know, in many other games where you've just got the system itself, there's no harm in just poking and prodding at it and trying to figure it out. In light of that, Carrie, would you consider it a failure, a success, or maybe irrelevant that you get the same ending if you get through the entire game without killing anyone, no matter what route you take to get there? You might have someone who plays through the game, like Flowey, just trying to find everyone's weakness and get past it. Or you might play it more genuinely, trying to find ways to relate mm -hmm. with monsters. 
if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think that's really the crux of this whole issue is it's your interpretation that you bring to it that gives that experience that meaning to you. And so in, in the case that you're saying, you know, you can do true pacifist, you can fight Asriel and do all that. And the, all of those, all those little interactions can have basically no meaning to you. But the thing is that as an experience, Undertale, it, it doesn't entirely rely on, but it largely benefits from that connection between player and game and the world that's been built. And so I think that's why a lot of the people who say it didn't really grab me, it didn't really you know, motivate me to, to do anything for these characters. For them, I mean, the, the game just didn't offer the experience that they were expecting based on what others had experienced. And so I wouldn't necessarily call it a, a success or a failure or what have you. It's just that was their experience with the game. And uh, they would I think they would consider it to be a, a failure, but I don't think it's any inherent failing of the game itself. It's just we're all moved and motivated by different things. Sure. I think that makes sense. Yeah. I guess if I was to throw my hat into the ring on this, we all know that there are multiple ways to get through Undertale, right? So if we were pretending some other RPG was made and one of the ways you can get through is by lying and manipulating or whatever, I still think that's just a, a fair way to have the game made. I guess where she might be getting... Her sort of weird coming from is that she thinks she's doing the quote-unquote good route, but doing actions that she doesn't find that are good. Anyway, I actually have to think this over. All right, right you need a couple. So, yeah, I need, I need a couple because I, I lost track of where I was going. Uh, why are you a fan? In the course of playing Undertale, did you ever have an interaction that felt artificial? Like I forced myself to pick a choice I wouldn't normally make? Yeah. I probably mentioned that before with the... Uh, picking on the guy thing. Mm, like, that's right. Uh, like I, I wouldn't think, oh, in the peaceful route, I'll just pick on this one particular monster. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess in a sense, it is more about where you can see it's it's there's puzzle solving in how to get out of the fights. Is that to say when you reflect on a character as a puzzle, uh, does that dehumanize them in any way or make it seem less genuine? Like there's some kind of lamp-shaped Tetris block? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> I never really thought about it like that. I, I don't know if I'd call it dehumanizing. Because they're monsters. Demonsterizing. Yeah. Oh, that Depersonifying. <laughs> yeah, that's a better word for it. I, I thought you meant the dehumanizing of, uh, of my character. No, of uh, turning someone who has thoughts and feelings into just a problem to be solved. Okay. Yeah, I guess in a sense it does kind of seem like everybody's got a problem to solve. And in a sense, it's it's not unique because all species of a monster will have the exact same problem to solve. So like, I forget the name, the, the Christmas tree enemy you always have to undecorate. Like, somebody managed to find this entire species of monster and decorate them. <laughs> And basically, you have to undecorate the whole herd, I guess. Although, can you can you encounter Gift Trot more than once? Because I thought that that was a one-time encounter in that area, and once you spared him, he didn't come back. Really? I, yeah, I thought I, I fought him more than once, but maybe I'm just imagining things. Well, I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember now, but... Um, 
Yeah. Although I know that in other cases, uh, certainly, like you can encounter more than one Aaron, you can encounter more than one Mold Small. Yeah, a huge species of Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that terrifying? <laughs> they just, they just, they just come out at you flexing. Mm, mm. <laughs> Shouty, would you agree or disagree with how Mario fan felt? I don't think turning an enemies. Problems to be solved doesn't really deperson them. I, I wouldn't say just breaking down what the enemy wants and solving it makes them any less of a person. Okay. You're just helping them solve their problem and they're happy. Yeah, I think that's a fair view. Adrian? What I want to express uh, that I was trying to do earlier is a little complicated. It's a way of saying if the game made you feel like you were getting through by lies and manipulation. See, the thing is, like, there's actually, like, two different ways of going about it, but of, of what she's saying. But the main thing that I'm getting from her post is that it feels like she's trying to condemn the game for making her feel the way it did. And I'm sorry, but I, don't, I just don't think that it's a thing for stories to... Like, let me find a quote. I think where there's a part where it says this made me feel uncomfortable because I don't think violence should always be the way to solve our problems in video games. But I don't think that insincerity and manipulation should be either. And I think the word that comes there is should be. I think when someone talks like this, I think they're pushing their own values into the way games should be made. But really, it's just it's, it's still a fair thing for the game to do. You don't think violence should always be the way to solve your problems in video games? Okay, but... There are games where that is the way to solve your problems, and that's not a, in itself a problem. And if this is how the game made you feel, that insincerity and manipulation was how you went through the game to solve your problems, that in itself is not a problem. You're just making an observation about how you felt when playing the game. So in our hypothetical version of Undertale, where you do literally have to lie to get through without killing, that prospect doesn't bug you? No. We already play games where you do things that are we, things we wouldn't do in real life, like when you, games where you go around killing people, and I don't think that's a problem. Is that to say you would consider that kind of game just like a, a hypothetical exploration of what it might be to live in such a world? Uh, sure, yeah. All right. As we've been discussing through this, that Undertale isn't really a game where you do these kind of things, where you don't really manipulate... Where if you're not getting attached to the characters, where you actually do those actions because you want to help them out, but you're only doing them just so you can get through the game, I think that kind of reflects a little bit more on you than really the game, because that's just how you interpreted it. That's just your taste. Are you always helping the, the enemies out, though? Like I get the impression more that you're just kind of giving them what they think they want even if it doesn't seem, like, wholesome or necessarily good. Like, that's kind of what I was trying to say before about Papyrus. It's like you're letting him live in his fantasy world where he's the best and you're the best and nothing is wrong, even though there's obviously quite a lot wrong in this world that he lives in. So, I don't know, I, I picture the character you're playing as more of a parent figure over all these monsters, which are kind of sad and a little dumb a lot of the time. <laughs> Like the the vegetable guy that just wants you to take a bite of him real bad. And like, I don't know. There's some other weird ones. 
about that parent comment, I think it's more that the player is the parent of the child and and it's telling the child what to do to make things right in the world. And I don't think that a, a child would be able to adequately explain to four papyrus, you know, the the reality, the, the stark realities of the world where monsters exist and they've been trapped underground after a terrible war for hundreds of years. And so I think this, again, brings up kind of the limitations of our our protagonist, who is literally a child of probably about 10 years old, if that. And so what is within that child's power? Generally, it's small things like, you know, Shiren doesn't have much confidence in her voice. So you sing with her until she realizes that she has talent, for example. All right. Nate, do you find in Undertale you are able to express yourself more than in other games? I don't know. I guess it depends on what you mean by express myself. Like, Do you find that the options within the game are maybe more fitting with how you personally feel than most of the time? No, I would say in this game, like... I'm I'm presented with some choices, and I choose the one that I feel like I would most likely do. But, I mean, I, I don't feel it much more in this game than I do in, you know, a game like, I don't know, like one of the Fallouts where you're presented with another list of options and you just choose the one that you feel like either the character you're role-playing as would do or the or you yourself would do. Yeah. But, I mean, in this in this game particularly, I don't see too many options that... I would personally like aim for. So it doesn't let me express myself like without boundaries, but at the same time I don't feel like I was presented with three options and I hated all of them all the time either, so Sure, and that kind of speaks to how well games already allow us to express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shouty in Undertale, do you feel like you're able to express yourself more than in other games? I don't really play games where you take uh, non-violent approaches to the situations, so it's hard for me to say exactly you that. A Kirby pacifist run? There's no Kirby pacifist <laughs> run. Wow, Kirby's a monster. Do I, do I need to show that video again to you? <laughs> <laughs> so I take it you're a big fan of Animal Crossing. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> Well, Undertale definitely does let me express more than I than I want in something like Animal Crossing. Because Animal Crossing, yeah, there aren't really any dialogue options that come up uh, as often as in Undertale. I don't know. You just say random stuff with the villagers, and it's nothing really meaningful. Yeah. I, I was being half silly there. Um, no, but that's like the only game I've played that, that you know, <clears throat> that's really nonviolent. Yeah, okay. Carrie, do you feel that Undertale allows you to express yourself more so than other games? Uh, yeah, actually. Um, when you think of choice in video games, and you think of the games that in the past that have given you choice, and how that um, has evolved from simply allowing you to you know, somewhat change the course of things, um, going way far back, I remember... Um, JRPGs like Fantasy Star 3 where you could make minor choices and just dialogue options that would change minor things in the game but didn't didn't really have any impact on the story and then you, as you move through kind of the, the history of games you get to your Bioware RPGs where you had different uh, paths you could have like a good, a bad, and a neutral at times and you know KOTOR you could be dark side or light side or kind of in the middle sort of bland neutral ending sort of thing that always pissed me off but anyway, <laughs> and so 
uh, knowing all the the games that um, I've ever played, and you know, bringing sort of that context into Undertale, I feel that it was expressive in that I had an unprecedented amount of control over the the tone of the entire game. Because if you do neutral or pacifist, the game's pretty lighthearted. But if you make that decision to go no mercy, oh boy, it's almost like you're playing a totally different game. One of my friends, uh, his name yourself, mentioned that uh, after a certain point in the game, he just never saw Sans anymore, which was completely different from my playthrough. He probably killed Papyrus, because if you kill Papyrus, Sans disappears from the game until you get to the end. And Sans is also an interesting case for that reason, because he reacts, he reacts directly to how you choose to conduct yourself in that Papyrus fight. He doesn't really care if you flirt with Papyrus or not, but if you hurt his brother, if you kill his brother, he completely changes as a character. His demeanor towards you is completely different. For example, if you that, if you kill Papyrus and then you go to Shiren, and now you're aware that if you sing to Shiren and you can sit and you continue to sing to Shiren in a true pa- in a pacifist run or a true pacifist run, an impromptu concert starts up and Sans starts to sell tickets made of toilet paper and just all this craziness starts to happen. If you kill Papyrus, none of that happens. A hooded figure watches you from the distance. And it's very heavily implied that this is Sans just sort of forlornly watching you continue your journey after murdering his brother. But, I mean, you have these extreme options, which honestly aren't... Um, they themse- These extreme options within themselves are not too new of an idea, because typically in games that have a morality system, at least the ones that I've played... There are, there are only those two extremes. Either you are a total asshole and you kick puppies and eat children and you're generally a terrible person, or you are just this paragon of goodness and you fart rainbows and everybody's happy at the end. But Undertale kind of approaches it in a way that you are allowed to affect things in much subtler ways and get subtle responses from the game out of those small actions killing Papyrus and seeing Sans' reaction to his uh, brother's death, which is to ignore you until he guilts you in the golden hallway. Um, That is probably one of the more significant ones, but just like little things, like if you call Toriel at the start of the game and you call her mom and then flirt with her, she will bring this up against you later in the game in front of everyone. It's hilarious. Do it sometime. And the thing is, if you do it in the opposite order, she will also bring that up in a different way. And so, to me, that's kind of, it's kind of cool that I can uh, take these different actions in the game, and the game will then respond. And so, I think that, yes, it is more expressive in its own way. And it's fascinating that it's able to do so with the fairly simplistic um, mechanics that it presents itself with. So, a key part in being able to express yourself is having your expressions confirmed by some reaction within the game. I'd say so, yes. Um, Otherwise, you're kind of just doing random stuff, and who cares? To some degree. Certainly, I can't be alone here. I've played through games, and I've kind of, in my head, kind of role-played, oh yeah, Link's doing this now, or Mario's doing that, oh, he punched that guy in the face, isn't that funny? But there's just another layer of satisfaction when the game recognizes what you've done and responds in kind. So it's not that it doesn't matter when it's just me expressing myself quietly to myself. It's just that 
it's really cool when the game actually has a response for that. Sure. Yeah. When you start abusing chickens and all the cuckoos uh, gang up on you. <laughs> oh, Finding geez. stuff like that has always been a real treat. Yeah, so it's those little Easter eggs, and the, it encourages you to... Well, in some in some ways, it encourages you to be a flowey and to keep poking at the game to see what happens. But it also, in in my eyes, when I was during, especially during my first playthrough, it encouraged me to just think outside the box a little bit, even just during that single playthrough. Not necessarily do anything that I wouldn't want to do, but to approach it in more of a a me way, thinking. Yeah, if I if I do something in a way that might be unexpected or unique, maybe something unexpected and unique is going to happen in turn, and th- thus reward me for uh, for acting in that way. You're a lot more optimistic than I am. <laughs> Wario fan, are you able to express yourself more in Undertale than in other games? I was trying to compare it to any other game I played with the moral system, and the one off the top of my head is uh, uh, Infamous. I mean, that's that's a pretty direct moral system there, too. And the other thing is that that game, it was easier for me to go back and do a second playthrough from the opposite spectrum, where in Undertale, I'm kind of afraid to do it from the opposite spectrum. Like having to face the consequences? Yeah, like like it didn't bug me so much if, if I wanted to choose the evil path in the infamous games, but I, I can't bring myself to do it in Undertale. You don't have a goat mom in, in Infamous. No, I'm afraid not. <laughs> yeah, Infamous has only like five-something recognizable characters, most of which are bad guys. In fact, you only have one best friend in that whole game. And it's not Flowey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, Adrian, are you able to express yourself more in Undertale than in other games? Uh, I always find this the expression question kind of hard to answer because I feel like in any game, you express yourself in some way. Yeah. Because part of expression means you choosing what options you're given. Like, it, it reflects what you value, and that is a way to express yourself. Especially when it comes to things like customization. Like, this is what I like, and that's one way to you know express yourself. So to say I can express myself more, uh, I wouldn't say that. or I, I don't know. I, I wouldn't try to quantify it. But what I would say is that I like what I was able to express myself with. You know, and that goes to being able to play the game Pacifist. Uh, that's one thing that uh, I did like and that I haven't actually gotten in other games before. So that uh, Super Mario Bros. 3 might be just as expressive with the Hammer Brothers suit, but it's not expressive in the same sense that Undertale is. It's a different variety. Yeah, like for me, when I decide to push myself and do Mega Man No Buster or play Mario and go for all the, you know, the star coins or something like that, that's still a way of me expressing myself and what I value. Okay. I think that about does it, unless anyone else had more thoughts on Undertale. I, I still feel like I couldn't get out a complete thought on that post that, uh, in at least in a way that was more elegant and coherent. Uh, even now, I'm still just wrecking my brain over it because it's like the things that there's like three different ways that that post kind of tr- troubles me. And it's trying to and the thing is, they're all kind of interconnected in a way. And it's trying to pull that apart that I'm having a hard time with. You will have to share it with us on the forums. 
when it, it comes to mind. Often <laughs> I find I have to sleep on these things before they truly coalesce. Yeah. And, but I think I did hit the main point is that I think the one thing I just kind of think they may be going overboard is trying to say, make the game appear more amoral or be a little bit more judgmental. It's like the way she kind of de- described it, like, I don't think violence should always be the way to solve our problems. It's like, it's like, it almost sounds like a, someone saying that, oh, why do I have to shoot people in this FPS game? It's like, what? So you think maybe maybe part of the issue here is being able to take the game on its own merits rather than your predetermined values. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what I see here, especially when the post initially opened with South Park and what they hated about it. That I feel like they're they they are kind of putting on a, a moral judgment of games shouldn't let us act like this kind of feeling that I'm getting behind it that uh, I'm not exactly I, I can't exactly get behind. Sure. So <clears throat> before we leave, uh, Carrie, do you have a favorite song in Undertale? Waterfall. Ooh, that By was a long a, shot. that was Shouty's favorite. Um, not to say that the other songs in the game are fantastic. Like I, I love Spider Dance. I Megalovania, obviously, amazing song. Like I like every song in the game, but uh, Waterfall just has this nice, peaceful calm to it. And it's like it, when I first heard it in the game, I just kind of sat there. I just sat frisk there for a while. And I'm like, I'm just gonna listen to this. I know I bought the soundtrack, but I'm still just gonna sit here and listen to this for a while. <laughs> that says a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I say Hotland Laboratory just to be different, but um, Waterfall was the first one that made me sit sit there and go, "Damn, this music is really good." Like I actually had to stop dead in my tracks just just to comment on it. Nate, do you have a favorite song in Undertale? I wouldn't say the, a favorite song. I just love how the music theme kind of plays out throughout the entire game. So you get the same like basic idea. I, there was one YouTube video I saw where it was like it. it there's a lot of together like four or five different songs during like different enemy fights and they were all like the same song just in a different context you know so like the the temi song is like goofy and bouncy and silly and you've got the same exact song like the same melody but in a different it with a different flavor you know yeah. in, in different areas in the game so i just i don't have a one specific song from the game i just the guy what's his name toby fox he was a music maker before he was a game developer i think so yes says a lot about his skill at making music. So, so with uh, Adrian, Maria, Fan, and Shouty, <clears throat> we've already done favorite song. We've already done favorite character. Adrian, do you have a favorite Metaton show? Damn it. I don't remember <laughs> what they all are. Um, <clears throat> Jesus, my laugh is really creepy when I have a cold. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Cooking with Metaton was pretty good. Cooking with a Killer Robot. Yeah, Cooking with a Killer yeah. Robot. Yeah. That was good times. Uh, Wario fan, do you have a favorite Metaton show? Uh, yeah, I do like to watch uh, Cooking with Metaton while eating my MT brand steak and uh, applying my MT brand cologne. Yeah, I dig those glam burgers. Oh, wait, wait, wait. It's MTT, isn't it? Yeah, I think there's two T's. Okay, so I just... Did I just sponsor that college and harvard or whatever no i i think you accidentally bought some uh, chinese bootlegs of metaton's products you might <laughs> want to go get a refund off ebay for that oh brother <laughs> oh that that glam burger is not gonna sit well now <laughs> it's made of actual glitter oh 
It's a sham burger. Um, <laughs> oh, hey. <laughs> Shouty, do you have a favorite Metaton show? I like watching the MTT news and getting the latest updates on the underground. Getting the latest updates on where that bomb is. Yeah, on, on what dog is a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, I'm, I'm glad you all joined me for this podcast on talking about things with yeah. programs. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having uh, having me on as a guest. <laughs> yeah. Carrie, did you have any final words? Uh, what did the skeleton waiter say when he brought out the entrees? Bye. Bon appetit! Oh, no. Oh, oh. oh God. Oh. If you can't tell, Sans is my favorite character. In this How did I not see that coming? <laughs> <laughs> Adrian, do you have any final words? Yes. Uh, no, actually. <laughs> All right. Wario fan, any final words? Let's be excellent to each other. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Words to live by. Any final words? No, that's uh, that was, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Shouty, give us some final words. It's my fault that you're here, Carrie, so I'm sorry if you have to <laughs> I, I blame you completely. How dare you make me talk about this game I clearly hate so much. You monster. You're a monster. <laughs> right? I know. I got how to kill Saudi. <laughs> or spare him. <clears throat> or oh, spare God, check, me. Check, check, check. Oh, God. He's got that attitude. I better run out of here. Goodbye. Nah. All right. And that's that. All music in this podcast is from Undertale. I'll leave you with this final thought. Listening back, I wasn't as rambly as I thought I was. I actually made a lot of the points that I wanted to make. What made this so tricky was that there was a lot of even-if uh, branches going on. What I mean is that, see when she was talking about flirting with Papyrus. So, one, you don't have to flirt with Papyrus in order to avoid killing him. But even if you did, it wouldn't be a big deal because the options come from what your character would choose to do. So it doesn't matter if you personally don't want to do it. It's something that the character themselves is willing to do. And even if the case was that it wasn't something they weren't willing to do, that's still a fair thing for, for the game to do. Doing things you may not necessarily want to do in order to, you know, avoid having to kill someone. Like, that's just, that's well worth the game to have you partake in. So I can kind of get how how maybe why they feel so bad is because they're picking the good route and not necessarily doing only good actions, but that's a bit naive and shallow when you kind of think about it. Uh, speaking of addendums, uh, the part yourself said last time, well, one, that the conversation actually got a little bit off track, because uh, the part that he said that Elliot and I initially were interjecting at was not that he was saying the game wasn't morally challenging. In fact, that I, I like 90% agreed with what he said. It was just that one part where he said, because it wasn't morally challenging, it didn't have a moral dimension to its choices. That's when I said, that doesn't matter. And I think he kind of forgot that like halfway, but that's the thing I wanted to say is like, and that's why I brought up Infamous before. It's like, it's a moral dimension to your choice, 
it doesn't matter how easy it is to make, or it doesn't matter if you're saying, be friendly with puppies, or or the game needs to meet having me being challenged of not of sparing a white supremacist or something ridiculous or something like that. That's morally challenging. But I know it doesn't matter. The game gives you the game gives you options that have to do with the concept that have to deal with the concept of right and wrong, and that it recognizes you have a moral dimension to your choices, whether they're easy to make or not. Same thing with influence. You have a moral dimension to your choices. Even if it's binary, even if you personally feel it's easy to make and you'll make the same one every single time, it's it's there. Like right. the moral dimension it's, things it's it's there or it's not. There's no criteria that morally challenging being morally challenging needs to be involved with. Yeah, yeah, how much of a degree of a moral challenge it is is a whole nother topic. But the there is the moral dimension that's that's present regardless. Yeah. It's present regardless whether it's challenging or not. I don't know, I guess throw that in somewhere. I have this recorded. I don't know when I'll send this to Greg. <laughs> I don't even know if Greg's still here. If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com. Production on the Commune podcast is handled by our skeleton crew. I think they really boned it in this time, but dogs seem to dig them. <laughs>